Welcome to another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast. As co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell ask their guests, what is their prescription for better access? Hi, Scott. Welcome to episode 12. This is an important one, alternative funding programs and how they are uh, jeopardizing uh, manufacturer-sponsored patient assistance programs. Yeah, great. Hi, Mark. I hope you're well. I agree. That's a super important issue that we've got today. As you know, it's got some similarities to episode seven that we did, where we discussed the copay accumulators and maximizers. As you recall, one of our guests for that episode was Carl Schmidt from the HIV and Hepatitis Policy Institute, and they were one of the lead plaintiffs on the lawsuit challenging the accumulators. And uh, as you may have seen, they they uh, won the lawsuit and the accumulators have been disallowed. Yeah, that's that's a big win. Can you help our listeners understand what the impact might be on that? Well, the immediate impact is that the payers have to end these programs for any drugs that don't have a generic equivalent. So the majority of branded agents then. So that's a major win for patients. I do think, though, a potential remaining concern is that the decision did not address uh, maximizers. And so it remains to be seen whether, I think, whether these programs go away, whether they may convert to maximizer programs, or actually, you know, whether there may be some interplay with our topic today, the alternative funding programs. Well, again, I think this is a program, this is an important topic, as I said earlier, and one that if we can win a lawsuit around this one as well, it would go to a long way to help patients. From our point of view, though, before we jump in, we have two great guests I do have to uh, share the disclaimer, so let me read this to keep the attorneys happy, uh, that the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co-hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of sponsors or any of its affiliates. Well done, Mark. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, t- as you said, today we've got two great guests who are knowledgeable about this space, actually have written about the alternative funding programs. Kyle Crowell is a principal at ZS Associates, and Amy Niles is the Chief Advocacy and Engagement Officer at the PAN Foundation. Welcome, Kyle and Amy. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Scott and Mark. Really excited about this. We came across, uh, again, I've known Amy and the PAN Foundation for many, many years and had an opportunity to work with them, so very familiar with their work. But also, I was Scott and I were thrilled to see that you both had published articles on this topic about alternative funding programs. Before we dive in, can you guys uh, share just a real quick, because we are working to shorten the, the, the podcast as well a little bit, just your current role and how you sort of came across and got involved with alternative funding programs. Maybe Kyle, why don't you kick us off first? Yeah, I can go first. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. So as you guys said, I'm a principal at ZS Associates, a global healthcare consulting firm. And I've been, you know, for the last about 15 years working with mostly pharmaceutical clients in order to provide them sustainable solutions to market access and affordability for their their medications. I've done done a fair amount of work even designing affordability programs for manufacturers, designing PAP programs. So this topic is really near and dear to a lot of my clients' heart. This is really important. Yeah, like I was saying before, excited to have the conversation. Great. And Amy? I'm Amy Niles. I'm Chief Advocacy and Engagement Officer with the Patient Access Network Foundation. Most people refer to us as PAN. We are a national patient advocacy organization whose core mission is to support people who are underinsured, living with life-threatening chronic and rare diseases, 
We do this by providing financial assistance to cover out-of-pocket costs for prescription medications. I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, but with out-of-pocket costs so high, with, gosh, one out of every three Americans walking away from the pharmacy counter because they can't afford their medications, this, this safety net is critically important. In addition to the safety net, we have a very robust advocacy platform at PAN where we believe that we need to improve access to more affordable treatment for all Americans. So when you think about alternative funding programs and AFPs, this is truly a scheme. It's a prime example of a scheme that is preventing access to needed specialty medications for patients in Earlier this year, we issued a press release publicly denouncing AFPs and describing the harmful impact that they have on patients. Well, welcome again, both of you. I'll kick us off here. Uh, Kyle, uh, maybe we'll start with you and just some definitional aspects here. Could you explain as clearly as possible what the alternative funding programs are and, and how they operate and who are the players involved in them? It's probably important even to explain a couple of different dynamics too before even getting into alternative funding. I think, you know, one of the key, I would say one of the key dynamics is just affordability programs in general for, for pharma. And I'll just quickly uh, explain a few, I think, relevant dynamics. So number one, there's, there's multiple ways that pharma helps patients afford medications. There's, I think, a more well-known one is, is copay programs. So, and those are generally used for commercially privately insured patients. Pharma helps offset their copays, their deductibles, their coinsurance, whatever it is, uh, basically their cost sharing for medications. There's, Pharma offers another form of, of financial assistance that sometimes is referred to as a, a PAP or a, a patient assistance program. Those are a little different from those copay card programs because PAPs are generally free good donations. So those are typically offered to, I think you could put it in three buckets of patients. So number one are patients that are uninsured completely. So they have no insurance. They would have to pay the full cost of their medication. So pharma will, if they meet eligibility criteria, ship them free goods. Number two are patients who are insured, but then lack coverage for the medication through their insurance. That's a really important group as we talk about the AFPs. But again, that's a patient they have, you know, coverage through United and then United for whatever reason doesn't cover their medication or there's an impossible prior authorization to get through. So pharma will help them with, with free goods. The third group, which is actually one of the bigger groups, although less important in this conversation is actually Medicare Part D patients. Medicare Part D patients can't be helped through patient like a copay cards. So pharma will actually provide them free goods because that's something that they're, they're eligible to do because they can't offset their copays. And that's actually a really big chunk of patients because for specialty drugs, a lot of Part D patients have really high copays that are just extremely unaffordable, thousands of dollars. Those PAP programs and, and others, I think that, you know, Amy will get into foundations, vouchers. That's really the heart of AFPs that we'll, that I'll, I'll finally get to. But one other key dynamic I think important in this, and it's just the simple one, is specialty medications are expensive for employers, and especially your self-insured employers who, is, who are really paying, I mean, ultimately, it's a little more complex than this, but ultimately they're paying on a per-transaction basis. So every time one of their employees that's covered fills a specialty med medication, they're directly on the hook for, for that cost. And so you have... That dynamic, 
you have the PAP dynamic where they're, where pharma is trying to help patients that, that can't afford medications. And so I guess finally, where do these, these AFPs come into the picture? So what these alternative funding programs are doing is they are taking advantage pharma patient assistance programs. They are essentially making a patient look like they are one of those insured but not covered patients. So you can call them functionally uninsured. They have insurance, they just don't have coverage for the medication. They're making patients look like that and then attempting to enroll that patient in quote unquote alternative funding. And in this case, or in a lot of cases, the alternative funding is is through uh, the patient assistance program. Amy knows they're also targeting foundations. They're they're targeting vouchers if the if the pharmaceutical company offers vouchers, but they're they're really targeting funds that. And the reason that my clients don't like them is they're they're targeting funds that uh, were intended for other patients and not patients that were actually insured by their employer. So, Kyle, how do they make them appear like they're not covered in, in these circumstances? Yeah, so they're making them appear not covered by convincing the employer to carve out specialty medications from their benefits. They basically say, carve it out, and then we will handle that part of the benefit. And then when a claim comes through, so a claim comes through the pharmacy, it shows up as it's not covered. There's a message that is then sent to the AFP, and this works differently for each AFP, but we'll say in in a sense, there's a message that's sent to the AFP, okay, that patient One of your patients is not covered, and then that signals the AFP to start to try to enroll that patient in a foundation, in a PAP, to try to find a voucher. If they are going to go down here, you know, if they're successful, then that patient now has received free goods from the manufacturer or subsidized goods from a foundation. If they are not successful, if they are unable to enroll that patient into a PAP, then that patient actually goes through almost like an appeals process where they're then able to basically get coverage for the original product through the original insurance plan. So you could you could argue it's almost like it's carving it out and not covering it kind of, but then if it actually isn't covered by the PAP program, the foundation, then they just provide coverage for the product the same way they would for any other patient. Kyle, you mentioned they. Who's they? These AFPs are third-party organizations that really have arisen as a result of those two dynamics I was talking about before, you have employers that are really trying to drive spend down for specialty medications. And one thing is specialty medications represent, you know, it's like, I think it's between two, 2% or 4% of all pharma prescriptions, yet they represent 50% of the cost. And so if you look at these employers, they say it's, it's so few of my patients or my employees that are using these specialty medications yet it's a huge chunk of our our spend. And so you have those two dynamics and then you have these PAP programs who have been super generous. Pharma has been really generous with their PAP programs and those two things have come to a head. And then these AFPs, these private organizations have popped up to quote, try to solve a problem. Are the AFPs for-profit or not-for-profit entities? For-profit generally. And how do they get paid? Yeah, so they get paid. There's two different ways they, they can get paid. Um, it you know works different for every AFP, um, and I'm probably not going to be comprehensive in every way that they're they're charging. Sure. But I'll say the two major ways. So one, if they save, if they're able to successfully enroll someone into a PAP, it means that the employer's 
spend goes from what they would have had to spend to zero, the AFP gets a percentage of that savings. That's one way we'll say between, I've heard estimates around 20 to 30%, uh, which can be pretty revenue given the the cost of these medications. Uh, the other way is like a per, like almost like a per member per month fee that they can charge as well, which would be typical like a PBM would could charge. So those are the two big ones. I think the biggest revenue source is just a percentage of the savings. We may want to dive into that a little bit more in just a minute, but it, in the meantime, Amy, you're seeing this, the impact of these programs on patients and what it's doing for their access to these therapies. Can you tell us a little about what, what you're seeing from your, your perspective? Yeah, I, I think when we think about the practices of AFPs, it, it's harming patients in a number of ways. First of all, when a patient individual is paying premiums into their health plan, they should expect that all medications will be deemed an essential health benefit. So to me, it's not appropriate for the plan to say arbitrarily, I'm going to carve out this set of specialty medications or all specialty medications. The the patient has been prescribed a medication that is on the formulary and should have access to it. So in our view, by doing that, the AFPs, the plans are actually discriminating against people who are living with serious health conditions and serious illness. Everyone pays the same premium, but in essence, in these cases of AFPs, the plan's charging more for coverage based on health incomes. And it seems like there's some sort of discrimination against individuals who are lower income, who pay the same premiums as people with with higher income. I, I think of most significance is the delay in treatment that patients can experience. So if the plan covers that medication and that patient can gain access to that medication, they can start treatment right away. But when they're told that it's carved out and, oh, we're going to refer you to this company who, by the way, is not an insurance company, they're a a for-profit entity, and they'll help you find assistance, there's a time delay. So they may be successful in finding assistance, maybe they're not, but weeks can go by. And in that time frame, the disease doesn't stand still. The disease progresses, symptoms may occur, maybe the patient can end up in in the emergency room. Another concern that we have is the matter of importation because there have been situations where the AFPs are direct patients to import from outside the United States. These are non-FDA approved medications. So these are potentially unsafe situations for patients. So a number of concerns around, you know, clinical outcomes, delays in treatment, but I think on top of that is financial harm. So if the patient's referred to a vendor, let's say the patient says, I don't want to work with this vendor. I don't know who this vendor is. I don't want to sign a power of attorney to provide all the information I need. Well, then that patient may be stuck. If they want access to their medication, they may need to self-pay. Of course, if the vendor is unsuccessful in finding assistance from either a manufacturer PAP or a charitable foundation like PAN, Kyle is right, that patient may go back and may ultimately gain access, but there could be scenarios where that doesn't happen. And again, the patient self-pays. So lots of harm. I believe, being done to patients who are our most vulnerable. 
lower income patients living with serious illnesses. Do you know, either of you, do the plan sponsors employing this tactic, I'll say, how do they pick, you know, what's going to be a non-essential medicine? Is it is it everything? Is it some things? Is it is that decision coordinated with their PBM's formulary decision? Could you declare a preferred agent on your PBM formulary non-essential and try to get it as a free good? Then if you don't get it, that way you cover it and you collect a rebate? Is that, you know, how, how convoluted is this? They're carving out drugs based on recommendations for the AFP, or from, excuse me, from the AFP. So they, one thing just about even essential health benefits, so self-insured employers and even large non-self-insured employers, they don't need to comply with some of the Affordable Care Act regulations. So they are able to carve out products or essential health benefits. Generally, those like essential health benefit rules apply to small, fully insured employers, which is actually a pretty small percentage of the market. So they are able to carve out these, these essential health benefits. Scott, to kind of more directly answer your question though, they are doing it upon you know, the recommendation of the AFP. Again, I shouldn't say like, I know every conversation that's happening between these two entities. There could be some back and forth between what the employer wants to do and what the AFP wants or recommends. But generally the AFP knows where they think they're going to have the most success. And one other thing, just because I think Amy brought up a great point about just income levels and kind of the difference, the differences in benefits that you're now applying to folks with different income levels. And I failed to mention before that generally one of the the criteria for enrolling in a PAP is your income. Manufacturers generally have income criteria anywhere between, let's say, 300 to 600 percent of, of the federal poverty limit. Yeah, and, and some, again, there's ranges that are below and above that. So what happens is if you are applying, if the AFP is trying to sign the patient up for one of these programs, the patient also has to meet the income criteria. And especially a lot of employed individuals are not necessarily going to meet that income criteria. And the ones that do, so the ones that actually are able to enroll in the PAP are the lower income folks. And by the way, the ones that are enrolling in the PAP, those are the ones that are getting taken out of their normal care process through the specialty pharmacy, because now they're going into this this PAP program that's being run by the manufacturer, which is separate from their full coordination of care that's happening with their PBM, their SP. And so that's a very different benefit you've now just you've now provided for your lower income folks who now have to receive this medication through the manufacturer and your higher income folks who don't enroll or can't enroll in the PAP are now able to receive medications like they typically would. You're creating an unfair process for employees at the same exact organization. So speaking of the patient assistance programs, let me have you answer this one. As this plays out, this is certainly straining the patient assistance programs that are provided by the manufacturers. Where do you see this going over the next some period of time? You know, it's interesting. We just did a national poll literally a couple of days ago of adults in this country and When I looked at the data and looked at specifically the individuals with commercial insurance, one out of four individuals commented that they were told that their specialty medication was deemed non-essential by their plan. And one in three said that they had been referred to some outside company for assistance. So I was actually shocked by that data. Not 
I mean, I shouldn't be shocked because I, I think these practices are going to continue unless there's some, you know, regulatory or legislative action. But we're concerned from, you know, a foundation perspective, like the eligibility criteria that PAP programs have, we too have eligibility criteria. And to be eligible for our assistance, you're diagnosed with an illness, you're, the medication you're seeking is on our formulary, you are insured, you are insured and your income level is at or below 400 or 500% of the federal poverty level. Our safety net, charitable foundations like PAN, as well as PharmaPAPs are already strained with limited resources. And now we, we face a situation where potentially more patients could be sent our way, possibly get assistance, which means that patients who truly meet our eligibility criteria may not get the assistance because we've diverted it elsewhere. It is a big concern for not only the PAP programs, but the charitable foundations. And we've, we've actually, unfortunately, seen this play out at PAN earlier this year. These kinds of practices are very hard to uncover and to detect. But because all of us at PAN were familiar with AFPs, we're concerned about AFPs, we started looking kind of on the back end to see where the enrollments were coming from. Now at PAN, what's typical is that the patient, him or herself, is going to enroll in our program, or it's an authorized representative. It could be a family member, it could be spouse, partner, their healthcare provider. It's not typically going to be a for-profit alternative funding vendor. What we uncovered earlier this year is one vendor who over bunch of months had enrolled hundreds, hundreds of patients across many disease funds that we offer assistance for. So we identified it, hmm. we disenrolled all those patients, we took it one step further and we were proactive and reached out to all those patients to let them know that you might be eligible for assistance at PAN, here's our eligibility criteria. And we got in touch with the vendor to say, not appropriate practice. But Let's say we weren't so vigilant and those enrollments had gone through. That means that hundreds of other patients may not get the assistance they need at PAM in the future. Wow. And how about the, for either of you, Amy or Kyle, any response from the manufacturers yet uh, regarding these programs? There's been a range of responses. I'll say anywhere from the manufacturer doesn't understand these programs or, or know they're happening. That's I'll say that's the uh, one group that I that I run into. And then there's it, it going as far as AbbVie has filed a lawsuit against these programs. And then I will say the the more concerning it's actually it's a concerning response, not because I'm saying it's the wrong thing to do, but it's a concerning response because it's going to affect patients, and that's their they're reducing or making it more difficult for patients to enroll in their PAPs. Even there's a large pharma manufacturer that has already stopped including patients who are commercially insured, but not covered for their medication. And so, and they're doing that as a result of these AFPs, but obviously we know that that has, that has effects on other patients. So where this is going to go from a manufacturer perspective if these programs keep growing and it, they seem to be, and I say these programs, alternative funding programs, when they, if they keep growing and they seem to be, and employers in every survey I've seen, 
say that they're more likely to consider them next year or the three to five years. If they keep growing and it seems like they will, manufacturers are going to, more and more manufacturers are going to have to take those kind of drastic steps, which means not allowing certain patients in their program or lowering the, the income criteria. In other words, making it difficult, meaning you have to have a lower income in order to qualify for the PAP. And that's going to happen. Like, I'll just tell you, like, that is more and more manufacturers are going to do that in the next few years because these programs are growing. So they, they're really forced to. Well, that's sad. That's going to hurt a lot of patients. And Amy, Kyle just mentioned the AbbVie lawsuit. Part of your job, of course, is, is advocacy as well, policy work. So what can be done from either a, a policy, regulatory, or even a legal standpoint about these programs? Yeah, one of the things that we're focused on now is, is education. And this is why podcasts like this are so important. So the Pan Foundation sits on a task force right now of several leading national patient advocacy organizations. We're all quite concerned around the growth in AFPs, and we are focused on making sure that the egregious practices of AFPs are known to the Department of Labor, which oversees ERISA plans, and the Federal Trade Commission. So all the issues that we've talked about up to this point on the podcast, we want to make sure they understand these practices, discrimination against health, the health conditions, income, abandoning the fiduciary obligations of health plans, deceptive business practices that occur with the vendors, issues of importation, et cetera. So we want to make sure these agencies are understand the practices and understand the harmful impact to patients. Ultimately, where it leads, we might need federal legislation to ban AFP practices. I know there have been some conversations around that, but that may be what's needed. And in that regard, I'm spending a lot of time educating members of Congress and their staff around AFPs. In the conversations I've had over the last few months, I've been pleased to see that many of those offices are familiar with AFPs, but just continuing to do that education, it's really, really important. In the meantime, is there anything else that the manufacturers can do to try to ensure that the programs are being used for appropriate purposes and you know minimize the threat to that to those sets of patients? Besides, you know, Kyle mentioned lowering the income criteria, making that lower. For either of you, can you imagine any other things that you would advise manufacturers to think about? Scott, number one. First, a lot of these manufacturers just need to do more to understand if it's happening or not. I think that is, and I'll just say this just from an organizationally, it's so difficult to make a change if your organization doesn't know how often it's happening. So just even you can have these solutions, but convincing folks that you need to make a change, you need to first understand how often is it happening, try to identify these programs. By the way, some manufacturers have done that, um, have done a, a good job of that. I think the other thing is terms and conditions. Some manufacturers have started to change the terms and conditions to not allow these basically patients being enrolled by these programs. I'll say that's kind of table stakes because I think the efficacy of that is really not perfect or great. I think we've seen that some of these programs have still enrolling patients, even when those terms and conditions are in the enrollment criteria. The other thing is there's partnership opportunities for manufacturers here that they should explore because these programs don't just they i mean the, the biggest impact obviously is on patients impact on on pharma but they also impact pbms and sps in a negative way and pbms are really 
between a rock and a hard place because their employers are asking for this, but ultimately they don't want this either because it pulls patients out of their SPs, it pulls patients out of their benefit, and just their revenue structure is based on patients, basically transactions being completed by the PBM and the SP for specialty medication. So there is opportunity to potentially partner with SPs and PBMs, even if it's just message to employers that these are you know, the harms that Amy was just bringing up for these types of programs. There's an opportunity for pharma to do that. And then, of course, there's some there's probably some data and analytic things that could be done to identify these patients during enrollment where they could then they could block patients that are being enrolled in the AFPs or being enrolled by the AFPs. Those are more complex solutions that involve data analytics and and, and ultimately a company willing to do that. If I could, though, speaking of what manufacturers could potentially do, but what about also for patients? How do they recognize that they're they're in a program and what can they do? Like what, what, you know, we have patient groups that listen to this. We have patients themselves that listen to the podcast. What should we be advising them? Yeah, and no, it's a great question, Mark. And I think as a rule, patients are not familiar with the term alternative funding programs, just like they're not familiar with copay accumulators. But what I say for patients is that if their health plan tells them that their specialty medication is no longer on the formulary, no, no longer deemed an essential health benefit. It might be a hint that there is an AFP scheme at play, that it's been carved out. If the patient is told, don't worry, we're going to refer you to this outside company, they'll find assistance for you. That is a sign that an AFP scheme is at play. I think one of the most important things patients can do is when they recognize that they're involved in this, to share their story because those stories will demonstrate the harm that these practices are causing. So at our website, panfoundation.org, it's very easy to share one story. I also think we all have an obligation to continue to talk to our elected officials about these programs, patients, healthcare providers, advocacy organizations, provider groups, we all can do that. I think education for employers and HR professionals is critical because at the end of the day, I'm not sure they truly understand the impact that these programs have on patients. I know they wanna save dollars, but at the end of the day, we need to be patient-centric and it's not all about the dollars. Kyle alluded to a growing number of employers who may be considering AFPs. I, I know looking back to 2022 at that point, there was data suggesting that 14% of employers were already using AFPs, another 14% were considering using it. We're gonna see those statistics just grow and, and grow. So we we all need to be in this, you know, together and and find the solutions so that ultimately these practices are abolished. Yeah, thanks. I you know, I was told earlier this year by a former PBM executive that the copay accumulators and maximizers had been the fastest growing products in the PBM industry he'd ever seen. And it makes me wonder, as listening to you guys about the prospects for this, that especially with the uh, accumulators recently being disallowed, even with the PBMs kind of selling against this for the reasons that Kyle mentioned, it may be just that the self-insured employers demand it and, and it may grow as well. Okay. Well, listen, we, we all, this has been great uh, and very informative. Uh, we, and we always close by asking our guests uh, for their prescription for better access. If you had the magic wand 
what thing would you do to try to improve uh, patient access? Amy, why don't we start with you? Certainly, as it relates to the topic at hand, alternative funding programs, we need to see them go away so that there's no more harmful impact on patients. But if I had a magic wand and could change everything about our health system, I would say that we should have a health system where patients are truly at the center of how we design health policy in this country so that we don't continue to see or face these barriers to access to care and patients having to have such financial burden to access the medications they need, access other treatment that they need. You know, I agree with Amy. I think getting rid of AFPs is, is a good start, but I'll, I'll go down a different topic as well. And, and actually really the same, same line of thinking as Amy, where patients need to be at the center of, of policy. And so if I had a wand, it would be <laughs> taking the 340B program and taking all the savings that we generate in that program. And then instead of hoping that it goes to patients, requiring that that savings goes to patients in helping their, you know, pay for their, their medications. And just to throw out numbers, there was last year, $50 billion of savings generated by the 340B program, 50 billion. If that, I'm sure Amy could tell you that 50 billion would go a long way if we could apply that to patient medications. And today, like I said, it is without getting too much detail, it's, it's hope that money is going towards patients and hope is not a good strategy. There needs to be a requirement that that money goes directly to patient copays, out-of-pocket costs for expensive medications. And I think we would solve a lot of problems. Yeah, that is, that's a great point. And I think, um, you know, speaking of speaking of dollars that could be allocated to patients, another way of thinking about it is, as you said, the employers have the money to pay 30% to an AFP third-party vendor. So they have money to pay for drugs instead of going to an administrator who's denying access to care. And so there are dollars that are throughout the healthcare system. Uh, I think we all agree that there's got to be a better way to, and as Amy said, putting the patient at the center would be a would be a huge start. So, well, let me say thank you. Thank you to Amy uh, for joining us. Thank you, Kyle, for joining us. This is just a critically important topic. Scott, you want to do any uh, sure. sort of wrap-ups and yeah. then I'll add on? Yeah, happy to, Mark. So this conversation does clearly build on the copay accumulator and maximizer conversation from earlier. It goes a step further, obviously, and, and that just seems to be a recurring theme, you know, with so many of our episodes. Uh, Jamie Robinson, the health economist from Berkeley, described it, you know, early on in our series as it's become the war of all against all and just a series of tactics of back and forth, back and forth. And moreover, it just looks like it's evolving into an anything goes kind of environment, really. It's like, you know, there is no shame. And for me, that's even more distressing because... We all understand that the actors in this system know all this stuff's going on. They know it's coming. The manufacturers just price it into the next round of price increases, having to deal with these sort of you know, cross-subsidizations or their next round of uh, launch prices. It causes more friction for everybody and more wear and tear. There's tremendous expense associated with that navigation as well. And some folks that I was part of uh, researched that and reported on that. It's an unbelievable amount of money. And then all these unintended consequences, including most importantly for patients, uh, as Amy and Kyle have pointed out here. So for me, 
it's just another reminder of like how not only how crazy our system is, but how it is just inching uh, closer and closer to social and political unsustainability. So, Mark, I know you've operated in this sphere, you know, throughout your career, uh, the free goods programs, as well as the copay assistance. I know you spent a lot of time working with Bob Dressing on that. Uh, I'll be very keen to hear your ideas about this. We were the, I mean, my partner, Bob, when, when he was the president of the CF Foundation, he's the one that went to PMA. That was what Pharma, Pharma was called back then, was the PMA, the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association. He made it a, a requirement. All manufacturers should have a patient assistance program for patients. This is back in the 1980s. And um, when PMA came out with their first guide, they dedicated it to Bob for his leadership and called him the father of patient assistance program. So, so to see that these programs could be ending is incredibly sad because we remember a time when they didn't exist and patients were left out in the cold and didn't have access. And there were too many situations where patients who, for a variety of reasons, uh, didn't have access to their drugs and the manufacturer always provided the safety net. Uh, and by the way, not just in this country, around the world, they provide the safety net for these diseases and for access to these medicines. So to jeopardize this incredible program that's been helping patients for almost 35 plus years is just would be so, so sad, so upsetting. That's got to jump out at people. And, you know, Amy mentioned it briefly that we didn't get into the detail, but there are patients who are being harmed. I mean, there's patients who are, your cancer is getting worse and you are going to die. And I know there's probably not enough studies because it's still growing so fast. But I'm sure those studies are going to be or are being conducted by others. I think her numbers, the stats and the surveys she did were very enlightening. It's a huge problem that we need to do something about it. And I love the coalition. I love what she's doing to rally others and educate the agencies and policy makers and politicians and others about this, because this is a program that should end. I mean, it's as simple as that. Amy and Kyle both mentioned that in their, in their prescription for better access. I think that just sort of sums up the harm that these AFP programs could do. So anyways, those are some of my thoughts. Great. Well, thanks, Mark. And thanks, uh, Amy and Kyle, for joining us today for this enlightening discussion on this super important topic. Um, we really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Kyle. We appreciate so much. If I could just sort of wrap up uh, by saying... Uh, that we are trying to do a better job. We're going to have access. You can, in the description of this episode are some, what we call show notes, but they're in the description. Uh, we'll have access to, uh, for you to be able to reach Amy and Kyle, learn more about uh, these programs, access to their articles that they published, things like that. So you can learn more about this uh, critically important topic. And as always, my now all grown adult children tell me, Give us five stars on this podcast so we can continue. We we did learn that we are in the top 25% of all podcasts nationwide. We're moving on up and uh, our audience is growing. And so uh, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you for joining us for this episode 12. Thank you to my partner, Scott. And thank you again to Amy and Kyle for joining us. Thank you, Mark and Scott. Thanks, Mark and Scott. Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howe as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you. Thank you.